0: Thank you, Joseph.
1: Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Uh, Quite a few of you have asked about the upcoming tours that I'm doing to the Bible Land, so I'll just give you a a quick 20-second plug. Um, In fact, there's quite a few of you have been. If you've been with me to any of the Bible Land tours, would you stand up just so that we can all look at you with envy? Yeah, there are quite a few. Good, fantastic. Well, if Connie was here, she'd be standing on her own shoulders three times because she's been... Okay, you can sit down. You can sit down. No, actually, I'd like you to stand the whole time. Anyway, but this uh, this August and September, we're headed to Greece and Rome in the footsteps of Paul. And then in October, we'll go to Israel. And then I'm going to do a trip to Turkey in... April, which is a first. I've been to all the places that the tour will go, but uh, this is the first time that we'll actually walk in the steps of Abraham, as well as the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul. Um, Fantastic locations, and would love to have you join me in a tour that I dare say that you've never, ever been on. Yesterday, I was in my garage doing some woodworking, and my smartwatch is always telling me uh, that uh, it's too loud. There's like some noise thing on it that tells me, uh, you know, this is over 90 decibels. If you do this very long, you're not going to be able to hear very well. And so, you know, I silence it for the day. It's like, I know that. This is woodworking. Smartwatch, it's woodworking. And, you know, I always wear hearing protection, but nevertheless, the smartwatch always tells me, you know, It tells me a lot of things, like it tells me when to stop washing my hands. It's got a lot of things that it likes to control my life on. (laughs) But I was reading this week an article, speaking of uh, something too loud, an article of something too quiet. I read about uh, this place up in Redmond, Washington. Microsoft has built a room that the Guinness Book of World Records has dubbed the quietest place on Earth. It's a a sound room. Honestly, interesting that it's called a sound room because it's quiet. (laughs) There's no sound in it. But it's got all these pads and everything. I don't know if you've ever been in like a recording studio. Not the quietest place on earth, but it's a lot quieter than most places that we go on earth. Being in places that quiet is sort of weird because we are used to sound. In fact, the name of this article the title of this article is The Quietest Place on Earth Will Drive You Mad. And I want to read just a couple of lines. The article said, quote, only very few people manage to survive in this room for a period of a very long time, at most an hour. After a few minutes, you start to hear your heartbeat. A few minutes later, you can hear your bones creaking. Boy, this class would be deafening, wouldn't it? <laughs> You can hear your bones creaking and the blood flowing through your body without any sounds, <laughs> without any sounds from the outside world to get in the way. Absolute silence will gradually turn into an unbearable ringing in the ears. This will likely cause you to lose your balance due to the lack of reverberation in the room. This same article also said that. Uh, an average quiet library is 40 decibels. Now, my smartwatch tells me at over 90, hey, it's too loud. Half of that noise of, of, a, of a table saw is in a quiet library, amazingly. The quietest place on earth will drive you mad. Why is that? Because we're not a people who like silence. We don't like silence at all. In fact, just tell me, just go ahead, say out loud, what are some places that we go to that play music when this, like, there's no place to play music? Elevators, OK. In fact, we even have the, the phrase elevator music. Where else? Restaurants, doctor's offices. They've started televisions now as well in doctor's offices. Whenever I go there, if I'm like the only one, I'll look around and turn it off. It's wonderful. Where's other places? Grocery stores, OK. When you're on hold. I noticed, I called Apple uh, Apple Computer for some technical thing I was dealing with, and they actually gave me a selection. Would you like to listen to, you know, this music, or this music, or this music? In fact, when I got my MRI on my shoulder two, three weeks ago, the tech said, we're gonna put this uh, uh, thing on your ear because it's really loud. We're gonna put these things on your ears, and we have it pre-programmed for hard rock music. I told her, I said, I'd rather listen to the MRI. <laughs> I said, do you have anything like classical or something a little quieter? So it was this deafening classical music in my ear. We, we don't like uh, quiet. In fact, we, we've talked about the public places, but we've also conveniently left out our private places. Our cars are rarely quiet. We've always got something going. Our homes are rarely quiet, especially if you have kids or puppies. We have a brand new puppy and it's like being a parent all over again. And church. You know, I was just waiting for someone to say church. And our beautiful deafening organ (laughs) where we walk in and, and have to scream at each other for fellowship. Good morning, brother! We hate silence. We hate it. And in a world of sound bites and social media, we look at other lives and we think, you know, they've got it together. Other lives are just so wonderful. I look at Clyde's life and I think, if I just had a had a wife like Suzanne, life would be perfect. My wife looks at Clyde and thinks, I never want a husband like Clyde. No. <laughs> but seriously, we look at other people's lives and think, all it would take is for me to have a life like that but the truth is we have this deafening silence in our own hearts in fact we've talked about our cars our churches our homes but another very very quiet place that we are very uncomfortable with silence is our own minds and our own hearts because when we are in silence and listening to ourselves, all we have are our thoughts. And we've got a lot of tapes that just loop in our thoughts that we don't like to listen to. And so we try to have distraction. It sounds like a contradiction, but God's wonderful, effective love has a way of getting our attention and of drawing us back to a life that is not empty, that is not uh, frustrating in the silence, that is not desperately needing the life of that some other person that's a total stranger, but a life that can be content with Jesus Christ. Let's look together at the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus, chapter 23. I checked this morning, by the way, you have 274 shopping days left until Christmas. So I understand if you need to slip out and go ahead and get started. Christmas is important to us as Christians, but the commercialism, it's almost cliche now, but the commercialism is such that it is a huge distraction of what we're really celebrating. Easter, thankfully, is uh, not really gotten that commercial. I mean, I understand there's the bunny and this and that that still is a little bit, nothing like Christmas. We still are able, for the most part, to use Easter as a time to truly focus on the resurrection, the death and resurrection of our Lord. And this is a a wonderful thing to remember. Holidays, or holy days, which is where we get the the term holiday from, exist because something has happened that we need to remember. Holidays represent history. Even our secular holidays are such that uh, they're there to, to cause us to look back so that we don't forget the birthday of a president, or a particular, um, particular military campaign or something, or our nation's birth, this and that. We've jumped ahead to Leviticus 23, we were in chapter 16 last time around, but we've jumped again to chapter 23 to look at two of Israel's holy days, or two holidays or feasts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then next week, we will look at first fruits, all from right here in chapter 23, as we prepare our hearts and minds for Easter. So, Leviticus 23, look down in verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. If we forget, where we come from if we forget where we're going our life is going to feel very hollow we're going to be very uncomfortable with the silence in our own minds and hearts and the purpose of these holy days is like is like a tree in the sense that a tree has to deepen its roots before it can enlarge its branches if if a tree enlarges its branches before it deepens its roots then it's going to flop over uh, I, I've planted a lot of trees in my life. And one of the ones that uh, I remember distinctly was an oak tree. The thing was probably six, seven feet tall. And you know, you buy them at Home Depot and they come in these big, big buckets that somehow you just can't get off the, the ball of the roots. You cut it off, you get it out, you put it in this hole. You ever tried to dig a hole? Oh, it's hard. And you put the thing in there. You cover it all up, and it looks all pretty, instant tree, until the wind blows. And the wind literally like blew the thing over, I could, and I went and grabbed the thing, and I moved it around, and I could see the whole ball moving. So what do you do? You stake it down. And for the first year of that tree's life, it didn't grow an inch. But, at, but after that year, I could take the stakes away, and I could move it around, and the base is solid. It spent its whole first year going deep. God designed a tree to go deep before it branches out. He designed us to be the same. And these holidays, these holy days, were designed by God to force us to stop. And for them, they literally had to stop and not do any work, not do any laborious work. They would stop and go deep. And it's so helpful for us to do that as well. There were three times they would do it. Uh, Here they're called holy convocations. Interesting term. We don't use that much, but it's really just a a holiday. It's a special time to get together. Three times a year, spring, early summer, and fall, they would come and they would worship. And the first feast that's mentioned here in the spring was Passover. And that is what uh, this time of year will be celebrated as well. Uh, in Israel, as well as Jews worldwide. But it also occurred in the spring, the first time it happened. In fact, if you would, keep your finger here in Leviticus and turn to Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter um, 23. Exodus 23. Turn back there. And on your way... The reason that they had this celebration is because of what occurred in Exodus. And we know the book of Exodus is about the leaving of Egypt. In fact, the word Exodus is a Greek word that means exit. If you go to Greece, you'll see this word everywhere. Uh, you, uh, I, I always get a kick because I forget about it till I'm back there and driving along the road. Every road sign, Exodus, 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 because it's the exit for that particular road sign. You go up on the Parthenon, and you want to know how to get out? Where's the gift shop? Exodus. It's the exit. It means exit. And that's what was happening in the book of Exodus. They left Egypt. The most important Old Testament event is God delivering Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And they celebrated it through the Passover. And through the course of ten plagues that God put on the nation Egypt, God finally delivered them from Egypt. That last plague was the big one where the death of the firstborn and the death of the firstborn passed over the sons and daughters of Israel, the sons of Israel, because God said, take the blood of a lamb and sprinkle it or take hyssop and do it on the doorpost and on the lintel of your door. And when the death angel comes through Egypt, he will pass over you and you will not experience the death. And so they celebrate the Passover in remembrance of their deliverance from um, Egypt. Well, Exodus chapter 13, look at verse 3. Exodus 13, verse 3. This gives a little more context to this. Exodus 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Hivite, and the Jebusite, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand... The Lord brought you out of Egypt." So we're told here that the feasts were to occur at the month or the time of Abib in verse 4. Abib, or the Hebrew word Aviv, is the springtime. In fact, we, the, the term, uh, the city name Tel Aviv gets its name from this word. Tel, of course, when you think about a tel in ancient Israel, you think about an old place. Like Tel Megiddo or Tel Jericho. Uh, it, it refers to the old place, but Aviv means newness or spring or it's a, a fresh start. The word has a lot of implications. And so they named this brand new city Tel Aviv, meaning the old and the new coming together. When Israel started as a nation, they created this uh, town, which is really the outskirts of ancient Joppa, and called it Tel Aviv, the old and the new coming together, the old nation and the new nation coming together. God says that they were to celebrate Passover at the time of spring. Now Aviv isn't a month per se, it is more of a season or a time. The month or the, the time of Aviv is the time of springtime. It's the time when uh, the first, during the first month of the Hebrew calendar, this occurred with the spring and the ripening of the grain. And so there was a clear connection between the agriculture and their deliverance from Egypt. Why in the world would God make that connection? It's important to make the connection because our calendar, now you have to stay with me here because this is, this is sleep-worthy information, okay? Our calendar is based on the sun. We have a solar calendar we got 12 months, you know, we have to throw in a leap year or, you know, every, every once in a while adds a day so that we are at the same place around the solar system at every time each year. For the Jewish calendar, it's not based on the sun, it's based on the moon. And the lunar month spins around every 29 and a half days. How'd you like to figure that out? Every 29 and a half days. Well, they have figured it out and it's a bit of a challenge, but because the sun The sun determines our seasons, but their calendar is based on the moon. So think about what would happen if on a certain month, every 29 and a half days, that month is eventually going to get moved and where the season in which it originally happened is nowhere near the holiday in which you're celebrating. Which is why God says, make sure you celebrate it in the spring, even though your calendar is going to want to keep pushing it. And so what they would do is they would modify their calendar, and every third year, they added a whole month to their calendar. So it was like, let's just reset this whole thing. Beep, add a month. And now they're back in line with, uh, with the springtime. Why is that significant? Because without the additional month, the holiday would preserve, it, preserve its historical value. But its connection to the Holy Land or its connection to agriculture would have been lost. They wouldn't have connected it with the spring. They wouldn't have connected it with God providing for them. And that's the point. God is saying, I took you out of Egypt. Let's celebrate that at the Passover. But I also want you to celebrate the fact that I provide for you. The same God that redeems us is the God that provides for us on a daily basis. That's the whole point. God provides for them and God delivers them. Incidentally, that's a timeless truth that's true for us as well. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, I think it's about verse 32, he says, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The God who provided for our salvation is the God that provides us everyday needs. The same truth was being taught here in Exodus. So back to Leviticus chapter 23. What the Israelites needed to realize is that their deliverance from bondage wasn't just deliverance, you know, to, so they could enjoy the blessings of life or simply live for themselves, but rather so that they could serve the God who had delivered them. Look at verse 5, chapter 23, verse 5. In the first month on the pass, and uh, let's just start that again. In the first month, on the 14th of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work." So the seventh day, we know, is the Sabbath day, and they're already not supposed to be doing any work on the Sabbath day. But he reiterates that. He says this is a very special time. You don't do any work. So what's going on? You've got two feasts back to back. You've got the Passover, which is, happens one day, and you've got a whole week, <clears throat> the Feast of Un- Unleavened Bread. And they happen immediately, one right after the other so much so that it's just considered one feast but it's really two right side by side passover and then for a whole week you don't eat any leaven there is a principle that we can pull from the text that is true not only for was true not only for the old testament jew but it was all it is also true for us and i'll say it this way it's a timeless truth and it's worded that way that where it can apply to any believer at any time and it's this. Believers should regularly, oh, that's the early one. That's number two. How about number one first? Here it is. Believers should regularly remember and celebrate their deliverance. Believers should regularly remember and celebrate their deliverance. For the Old Testament Jew, for the Hebrew of the Old Testament, they did this on Passover. The most significant event for them was Passover, where they were brought free from Egypt. For us, we, our most significant event is Jesus Christ. Uh, Derek Kidner made the interesting observation. He said that when Eve in the garden took the fruit and ate it, it set in motion a chain reaction of sin. And later, Jesus used those same verbs, take and eat, as a means of remembering how that problem of sin was solved. Isn't that an interesting observation? She took and she ate, Genesis says. Jesus said, take and eat. Here's the problem, here's the solution. And in Exodus, it wasn't enough that the lamb be killed and applied. It also took faith. You're believing that smearing this blood is going to do something. In the same way, it's not just enough of cognitively cognitively believing Jesus lived and died and maybe even cognitively believe he rose again, but I am trusting in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ to get me to heaven. Not a life of good works, not church attendance, not dressing nice, only on what Jesus has done to pay for my sins. And the text teaches us that we should, believers should regularly remember and celebrate their deliverance. And we do that, of course, through the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted, interestingly, at a Passover meal. He, had, he, he made those two come together to show that one leads right into the other. This is, this is the significance, or A, part of the significance to uh, the book of Leviticus in our lives. So, then right after the Passover meal is this day of unleavened bread. And here's the second timeless truth. Believers should regularly remove corruption in light of their deliverance. So, we read there in verses 6 through 8 that you basically, starting the day after Passover, every day for one week you would eat unleavened bread. And the, the leaven or the yeast in the bread represented a couple of things. One, we're told it it represented the speediness with which God delivered them. I mean, they left so fast that the bread didn't even have time to ferment. Boom, let's go. But it also came to represent the permeating effects that sin can have. Paul would say, even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you allow a little bit in, it's going to permeate the whole thing. Point being, don't even allow a little bit in. Believers should regularly remove the corruption in light of their deliverance. A few years back, well, good grief, easy to say that. What's it been now? Oh, 27 years ago. That's more than a few years. I was tucking in my younger daughter at the time. She was old enough to speak. And children, it's wonderful when they're young because they say things with no filter. They don't know but to just say the truth. They don't know when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to say the truth. We've said some Lulu things, haven't we, as children? That's one of the funniest things about it. Anyway, I was tucking her in, and I I leaned down and gave her a kiss, and then she did her face like this, and she said, Ooh, Daddy, she said, You have pricklies. Go wash them off. (laughs) And so, you know, I had the, the day's growth on my face, and she was wanting me to basically go shave. And as I left, I thought, you know, shaving is a lot like sin in our lives. You've got to deal with it every day, and it tends to come back in the same places. And when other people get too close, they're going to feel your pricklies, aren't they? The Christian life is not a life of sinless perfection. I love it that Chuck mentioned this in the service because it is so relevant to our Christian life. The penalty for our sin is gone in Jesus' death on the cross. The power of sin to dominate our lives, as Chuck said in Romans 6, is gone. We sin because we choose to, not because we have to. So the penalty is gone. The power is no longer our master, but the final P, the presence of sin. It is still there. And it is strong and kicking. We've got a new nature also that wars against it. And when we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to yield to the power or the the presence of sin. But that's the problem. We've got pricklies. We've got to shave them off. And we can, by the power of God. We're going to have this this struggle. We're going to have growth. We're going to have progress. But we're also going to, to struggle in the process. Now, leave Leviticus and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Remember, God gave the Bible to a people who were already redeemed. He took them out of Egypt to Sinai and then gave them the Bible with all the laws. He didn't waltz into Egypt and say, okay, here's the Bible, obey this, and I'll take you out of Egypt. He didn't do that. He took them out of Egypt because God was committed to fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham 400 years earlier. God was keeping his word. It had nothing to do with the holiness of His people. His people weren't that holy, but God was being faithful to his promise. In the same way for us as Christians, God in his grace reached down to you and your backwoods upbringing or to your snooty context of wherever God saved you from or from your self-righteous context that God saved you from. We've all got different backgrounds. We've all got different struggles in which God reached down and like a firebrand pulled us out of the fire and saved us by grace. He didn't holler from above the fire and said, Look, as soon as you obey the Ten Commandments, I'll get you out of there. We would have burned to a crisp. He didn't enter Egypt and say, Here's the Bible, obey it, and then I'll take you out. They'd still be in Egypt. God begins with grace and then he says now I've redeemed you obey me it's from a context of safety a context of grace that God says obey because what happens we don't obey we do our best but we still fail that doesn't mean we lose our salvation and we got to start all over again no it means that there is a big broad safety net called grace It catches us every time we fall. And God gets us back up and says, here's what I want you to learn. Here's how you can do it differently. Here's how you can grow. Now grow and obey me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at Paul's words beginning down in verse 6. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Notice what Paul is doing. He is pointing back to what for them would have been a very familiar context. A context that is the Passover and unleavened bread. And he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Remember what John the Baptist said when he pointed to Jesus? He said, behold the what? The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. John was saying, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Everyone who understood John's words would have made that connection. The Passover Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's exactly what the Passover lamb did in the book of Exodus. It redeemed them from bondage. Jesus is the final Passover lamb who redeems us from bondage to sin. But then Paul goes beyond that. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Verse 8. Therefore, let let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Beautiful picture. Remember, Passover comes first, then the week of unleavened bread. Paul is assuming that his readers know that. And we know that because we just saw that in Leviticus. He is saying Christ is our Passover. He's died for us. Now, in light of Christ dying for us, we live an unleavened life. The order is important. It's not the Feast of Unleavened Bread first and then Christ dies for us. It's not that we live a holy life and then somehow we earn the death on the cross. It's the other way around. The death on the cross came first. His grace was given to us, and therefore we live a life that's unleavened. It's in response to what he's done for us, not in order to somehow earn it. In fact, I love the way Paul writes it here in verse 7, where he says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. But then look at the last half of this. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Now, remember who the Corinthian church was. This is the church that if there was ever a carnal church with a big C and a big A and a big R and a big N, and a, it's the Corinthian church. And Paul says, you are unleavened. You are already without sin in the mind of God. Why? Very next words, For. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. God sees you as unleavened because Jesus has died for your sins. Therefore, live an unleavened life. Celebrate the feast. In fact, the way he writes the word celebrate is not a one-time deal. You could could put the little um, word in there, continually celebrate. The verb there means continually live it out. It's not a one-time deal. It's not, uh, oh, it's time for Passover. Now we'll celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread for one week, and then we can go back to living our own lives the whole year. No, we continually celebrate the feast. I read an article a little while back about people up in New York, New York State. Uh, they were having a drought, and their yards were going bad. I remember reading that thing. Good grief, come to Texas. I mean, it's, our grass starts getting crisp in May. But anyway, these New Yorkers were feeling bad about their yard that was all drought, you know, drought dried and crispy. And so what they did was they mowed it to where it's all the same level, and then they paced back and forth with some green spray paint yeah. all over their yard. <coughs> Instant grass. Of course, we do that down here with what we call AstroTurf, or used to call AstroTurf. But, um, you know, you've got fake green grass, you get dead grass that is painted green, and it looks beautiful. Perfect. goes right back to what we talked about initially. On the surface, every one of us seems vibrant, successful, content, and happy. Just look at my Facebook page. I've got it together. Then you come to my house, and you realize, (laughs) Wayne doesn't really have it together. And neither do you. This is who we are. We put the facade on, and it's sort of crazy when you think about it. Because I forget who it was. Uh, Somebody uh, uh, was. We were, you know, talking and doing all the schmoozing before class, and we we look pretty good, don't we? I mean, most of us are wearing ties. Rex, I like that tie. You got a tie on. Some of us wear ties. I I only wear a tie because this is the only day I get to wear a tie. I don't. Kathy doesn't care if I wear ties at home or not. But I wear a tie because, you know, it's Sunday and it's an opportunity to wear a tie. You know, it's not a funeral or a wedding or something. But my point is that we look pretty good on Sundays. In fact, unless we're like going to a wedding or something or some graduation, this is about as good as it gets. Look around. This is as good as it gets. If you were to show up at someone's house on a normal day, wouldn't it be fun if we had a come-as-you-are church morning? <laughs> all the ladies are shaking their head no. But for many of us men, it wouldn't be much different than, than it is. We do a lot to look good, don't we? And it's not all just pride. I mean, it's, it's healthy. It's healthy to do that. But I'm having a little fun with you just to take the edge off the fact that we do a lot to try to look good. Church is a context where unfortunately it's not safe to be honest sometimes. I hate that. I wish it wasn't so. You know, at the same time, like the proverbs say, you don't want to a man of many friends comes to ruin. You can't, you can't be gut honest, open with everybody. But you can with some, and you should with some. Uh, Man of many friends comes to ruin, but the proverb goes on to say, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There should be somebody that you can be God honest with. I wish we could be more honest here. Uh, Sometimes when we ask one another, how are we doing? I mean, what are you going to say? I'm I'm suffering from my anxieties. Maybe that's honest. How do you you come back? to that? How do you you respond to that? It's tough, isn't it? It seems unspiritual to give any other answer other than, I'm doing great, praise the Lord. And yet Job, in his suffering, said, I'm not doing so great. And of course, his friends let him have it. And that's often what we experience as well. God has redeemed us, not only to save us, but also to give us purpose to fill that silence in our hearts that we try to fill with distraction, with Netflix, with music, with games, with whatever we can do to not hear our own voice. But God gives us purpose. Next week, we're going to look at an amazing connection that Leviticus gives to Easter. Did you know Leviticus actually speaks to the resurrection of Jesus? We're going to look at that next time around. So we've got a few minutes here. I want to open it up. Maybe you've got some questions or clarifications that you'd like to say about what we've talked about. Anybody? Clyde's got his hand up. This isn't going to be a comeback at what I said at you, is it, Clyde? (laughs) (laughs) All right. There's your microphone.
2: Well, okay. Two questions. One is when you ask if. uh, you've been on—we've been on one of your trips. Well, we had a problem with that because you were the pastor of our bus in Insight for Living. So Wayne took us around the Holy Land and told us about the Holy Land. You get
1: half credit for that, okay?
2: So how do you do that with a hand?
1: It's all good.
2: All right. The other one is. My wife just said, so now you have to go back to shaving every day. <laughs> now, <I> did, <clears throat> Words, Where in Leviticus does it say that?
1: Well, if you're a leper, you have to shave you know, all your hair off, so maybe that's what she means. <laughs> all right, thanks, Clyde. That was so helpful.
2: Just a little. Want to say one thing about your decibel. The decibel is means a tenth. Like a decimeter is a tenth of a meter. So forty or ten ten decibels is a factor of a th- of ten. And forty decibels is a factor of ten thousand. And ninety decibels is a factor of a billion. So it's so. You know, your forty decibels was not a half.
1: Oh, it's not half. Okay. I, uh, I thank you. I was I was a music major. A, I can only count to eight. A difference anyway, of a so. half.
2: A difference of a half is is three <laughs> decibels.
1: I do. I wear hearing hearing protection even in the library. Okay. Any other? All right. Not, not exactly what I had in mind for the Q&A, but that's that's good. That is, that is actually a helpful comment.
0: Uh, excuse me. Uh, I think I, n- I need explanation on uh, what you said, that uh, Jesus Christ already took our sin. But in fact, even myself, I usually did sin in my life. And therefore... I I I'm confused. We have uh, James in two sixteen saying work I mean paid without work is dead. In Galatians five, if we remember, it is uh, walking in the spirit that you will not uh, do
1: the, the deeds of the flesh.
0: I mean Chuck Swindle early in this uh, Morning told us that it is the Holy Spirit that battles with the sin and not you yourself. And then we have the pre will. Free will that uh, a matter of choice. If we choose to rely on the Holy Spirit then our sin will be removed from us. So can you at least uh, make a explanation on this
1: mountain. From those eight verses? Sure. Okay. Yeah, no, James, the, the point that James is making, uh, I think there in chapter two, faith without works is dead doesn't mean that there is no faith. Because James, that, that verse is in a context and the context uses the body as an illustration. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean there's no body. It just means it's laying there. Doing nothing. But James's point is that a faith without works is useless, which is why his whole book focuses on be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Writing to believers, don't just lay there like a corpse. Do something. Make your your faith live. So he's not saying that you don't have a faith. He's saying you have a faith that doesn't do anything. So that's the distinction I would draw. But everything else you said, I think, is a good connection. Especially like what Chuck was saying earlier today, that in our own power, we do not have uh, within us to, um, to live the holy life. We need the Holy Spirit. And In fact, Paul makes this point in the book of Romans. He, the first part of it, he says, just as you can't be saved apart from the grace of God, it takes God's grace to open your eyes to see that no good work you do can ever earn heaven. You must only trust in Jesus. He says, the same is true with your life after a Christian. You can't live the Christian life in your own power any more than you could be saved with your own power. This is Paul's struggle in Romans 7. I want to do this, but I can't do this. How do I do it? The answer is Romans 8. It comes right after that. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do what we couldn't do otherwise, just like in salvation. So I want you to know how much I appreciate your continual asking of this same thing over and over, and I hope that the Lord will continue to encourage you and, and give you insight into his grace. Anybody else? Maybe one more before we pray. Okay, going once, going twice. All right, well, let's close in prayer. I want to read from Paul's own words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So bow with me, and I'll read 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15, and then we'll pray. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Our Father, thank you so much for giving us the insight all throughout the Scripture, these timeless truths that we see from Leviticus and Exodus and in 1 Corinthians and some of these other passages that we've looked at are all beating the same drum, all singing in harmony the same song, that, that your grace has reached out to us and has called to us and has opened our eyes to the truth that we desperately need you, and, and in ourselves we cannot save ourselves. You did it for the Hebrews in Egypt. You've done it for us through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death as the Passover lamb. And because of that, Lord, would you give us the rededication to live unleavened lives because of what Jesus did for us. Help us to, to live that, that feast of unleavened bread every single day of our life that we would constantly be searching out and removing the sin that permeates our lives. We also thank you that you give us purpose, that you haven't just redeemed us from a life of bondage to sin and now set us free to do what we want, but you've given us a purpose. And you've told us to make disciples of all nations. You've told us to serve, to do all these things as a response to your grace. Thank you that we don't have to sit and listen to the silence in our minds and hearts and distract it, but we can fill that silence with praise and with prayer, and with gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody dismissing us, or is that it? All right, we're dismissed.
2: Regardless of his humble exit, we would say that may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you
0: and give you peace.